Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Deep Dive, a Dallas County Public Defender podcast that seeks to educate, inform, and expose our listeners to what is going on in the American justice system. I am your host, Lynn Pride Richardson, Chief Public Defender of Dallas County. The Dallas County Public Defender's Office is made up of hardworking, dedicated lawyers, investigators, social workers, mental health case managers, paralegals, and community engagement specialists that are committed to providing holistic, client-centered legal representation in the criminal, family, juvenile, appellate, and mental health courts of Dallas County, Texas. Now, I have said before that the Deep Dive's mission is to educate, inform, and expose you to what is going on in our justice system and in our courts. Now, that includes the good, the not so good, and sometimes even the bad things that are happening. We all know there are some things that are just not working and in some instances actually doing more harm than good. I do not intend to sugarcoat anything, but I must admit I really enjoy bragging about things that are successful, have a positive impact on all our communities and on the citizens of Dallas County programs and initiatives that are actually making a difference. Our guests for today's Deep Dive podcast have created and are operating a program that is actually doing a lot of good here in Dallas County, and I'm proud to say that our very own Dallas County Public Defender's Office has worked with them in order to provide help and assistance for some of our most needy and challenging citizens and their families who struggle with mental illness. So we're focused on a growing collaborative in our communities where law enforcement, yes, the police, partnering with behavioral health specialists, community engagement professionals, social workers, and victims advocates work together in their communities to provide mentally ill individuals and their families with the assistance, advice, and the support they need to hopefully divert that loved one from going to jail or becoming involved once again in the court system. These are individuals who sometimes suffer from trauma, have intellectual disabilities, or have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness like bipolar disorder, major depression, schizophrenia, or schizoaffective disorder. I want you to know that we have some incredible forward-thinking individuals like our two guests today along with the Dallas County government leaders are partnering and collaborating with our local behavioral health authority, our mental health and homeless advocates spearheaded again by local police departments and agencies to help some of our most marginalized and challenged citizens and their families. Our two guests are members of what is called the regional care team which engages with individuals and their families in DeSoto, Lancaster, Duncanville, and Cedar Hill, all cities located in Dallas County, Texas, by providing community behavioral health support to individuals and their families. I am so excited to introduce our two amazing guests, who, again, are members of the regional care team. First, we have Lieutenant Melissa Franks, the team's regional coordinator, who is also the founder of this amazing initiative. Lieutenant Franks is an 18-year veteran of the city of DeSoto's police department and Raven Thousand, the regional program director, manager, who is a licensed professional counselor. 
Before we get into the meat and the potatoes of what you guys do, I want to know a little bit more about your background. Tell me, where are you from, and how did you end up in this profession, and how did you end up doing this kind of work? Um, I guess we can start with you, Lieutenant. <laughs> okay. Well, I am a transnational adoptee. I am a South Korean uh, by birth, and then I was brought to the United States as an infant, adopted by a Caucasian family. I grew up mostly in the north of the United States, and then we moved to Texas when I was became an adolescent. I grew up uh, was also homeschooled, <laughs> so didn't have a lot of exposure to the outside world until I took an internship working with juvenile offenders in Marion County, Indiana. And I worked with them for about a year, and then I realized that even though I still wanted to help people, maybe giving those direct services was not for me. And so I decided to enter into the law enforcement side of the the system. And that's how I became a police officer, which was a very big surprise to my entire family because we didn't have any other police officers in our family. Um, and then from there, pretty much from day one of the academy learning about mental health, I realized that was just my thing. That was my passion. And so coming up through law enforcement now, 18 and a half years, I've spent just studying, trying to learn, trying to refine, trying to understand um, how mental health affects our communities and how I can best serve that community, which is kind of how we came full circle to forming, forming the regional care team. So had you ever seen a program like this anywhere else, or did you just come up with this, your own idea? How about let's do this with a group of people that aren't necessarily also police officers, or were you aware of any other programs of this nature anyplace else in the country or in the state? Well, first of all, I, I'm a big believer in communities doing what is best for them and their individual needs because we're all different, right? We're all different communities with different needs um, at varying levels. And so when I sat down to look at this program and try to decide what was going to be our best approach, I did look at a lot of the other models that are happening across the country. Um, Oregon, uh, Washington State, they have a tremendous outreach to homeless individuals. Right here in our state, we have Dallas Right Care. This was a great example of a co-responder to 911 uh, for mental health. So, you know, we have a lot of these different models. But when I, I got to looking at my community and the communities around it, I thought, this is what we need to do. We need to start filling some of these gaps. And so the models that I had looked at all had their value, but they didn't seem to meet the entire need that I saw. And so we had to add on some things to the model but to come up with what we've got now. Now, how did your um, coworkers feel about this? Your bosses, were they receptive or did you have to convince them to do something like this? Lot of very positive responses, all the way from the police department to the state, or to, I'm sorry, to the city level, all the way up to the county level. We received tremendous response and support for this type of program. I think everybody at every level of all the different systems that operate realize that this is something that's needed. You know, that's incredible. Um, we probably have um, a number of different groups listening to this podcast. There are going to be people that work in the criminal justice system and in the courts that are probably familiar with this kind of a program. But we have some citizens out there that um, 
are probably surprised to hear that a program of this nature exists. Now, there may be some who are not involved in the system and they have questions about, you know, how successful could this be? Is this another one of those feel-good things? When I first started practicing and we started doing diversion programs and specialty courts, you know, people used to say it's one of those hug-a-thug programs, <laughs> you know, which is not a very pleasant thing to say, but they didn't believe in it. And then we have members of certain communities that, you know, have some concern about law enforcement and people working in law enforcement who would be surprised to hear that you guys would be involved in a program like this that is so helpful to members of the community. Well, I think that, you know, ultimately in my, in my belief system, I've always thought it best that police were not utilized for behavioral health. I don't believe that in our realm of experience and training that we are the most appropriate fit for that. But due to our history as a country, deinstitutionalization and other things of that nature that have happened, it's kind of pushed behavioral health over into the realm of law enforcement, unfortunately. And so right now, yes, ideally we'd love to see a day where the community as a whole understands what their resources are, they know where to go, they know how to identify when they have a need, they understand what services are available, um, and the, the people that administer government at every level understand what resources are needed for their particular communities and have provided those things. We're just, we're not there yet. And so right now we have a community that is dependent upon 911 to meet their behavioral health needs. And even though that's not what we want, that's where we are. That's where we are. And so um, incorporating law enforcement in it at the beginning of this project was key because we're at this point where a lot of the behavioral health needs in the community are coming through 911. They are coming to the police department because society hasn't had anywhere else to turn all this time. And so but we'd like to transition them as we go along, transition them from needing police for this kind of thing because, after all, we're not the most appropriate to where they need to go ultimately in the community. That is awesome. Um, as lawyers working in the public defender's office, we recognize that as well uh, because we're committed to doing things like hooking people up with services, but we recognize that we're lawyers and we're not experts in that area. That's why we have mental health case managers and why we have social workers who are the experts. And that leads me to Raven. Raven, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you come to work in this project and to work in this area? Um, I was uh, born and raised in Beaumont, Texas, and I actually didn't see the outside of Beaumont until I moved here for my master's degree. But before I got to that, I um, had a child at 22. Um, my son actually just turned 18 and graduated high school recently, so it's very exciting. Um, but was spent for a whirlwind when he was diagnosed at age three with um, deferred uh, schizophrenia or a psychosis disorder very young. Um, so a young parent um, with no history of mental illness in, in our family unit trying to navigate a very complicated system. Um, understanding benefits, understanding what medications my kid should be taking this age, what is this going to do um, for his growth, for his development, you know, what is he missing in school, how do I advocate for what he needs in school, and so navigating that system put me on a path of just trying to figure it out for myself first, um, and then realizing that I really liked figuring it out for others too. And so that propelled me into, let's go to psychology. Let's find the, the basis of human nature and development and abnormal development and 
all of that. And okay, that's not enough. Let's go to counseling. How do we convince someone and motivate someone to get their needs met or to help families get others to help their needs? Okay, that's not enough. Right now I'm in my doctorate for uh, public health policy. Let's go to legislation and let's change the world. Uh, so I, I've kind of just kept going, kept going. But to get here, um, I actually I, I met my partner in California, uh, uniquely enough, and he lived here, and uh, he brought me to this area, and uh, I saw this opportunity uh, for the program manager for the care team and thought, I've never seen this, and this is what I've been trying to really, um, you know, facilitate in other areas, this uh, engagement piece. I think that what we miss um, a, bit, a lot in mental health is the engagement. Um, you know, she, she hears me just speech about this all the time, is one service that insurance providers don't pay for, Medicaid doesn't pay for, the state doesn't pay for is engagement. They pay for rehab, they pay for doctor's appointment, they pay for medication, they pay for that. They do not pay for the service to engage someone to want to do those things. It is a non-billable service. So if a provider, a not-for-profit, or anyone gives that service away, they're giving it away in their own bill. So why if that's the one thing that gets people to do the other parts and so our service is one of engagement we're getting out there we're getting people to recognize us and recognize how we're partnering and walking alongside them that we're not there for anything from them we're not there we don't take bills we don't take financial information we're just there to walk with them and get them where they need you have greeters at walmart you have someone who answers customer service all these what can i do for you what can i do for you what can i do for you Who's doing that for us in behavioral health? Who's asking, what can I do for you? Not, what do you need to do? This is what you need to do. You know, I'm listening to you, and it's overwhelming. And I think about so many of the people that we represent who are indigent, um, who are faced with these same challenges. Um, and I'm thinking of all the things that you had to navigate, having a son that is dealing with this and having to deal with those issues. And I'm thinking about a lot of our clients many of whom don't know where to turn. Can you tell us a little bit, um, either one of you, about how you provide services to them? Because we get so many calls from people who just don't know where to turn. And when they do call the police, because sometimes they don't know to call anybody else, the first thing they will say to us, we told them, don't take them to jail. You know, they're off their meds and not bad people. Can you give us some help? So can you kind of share with us the services that you provide and how you hook people up with resources and educate them on what to do? Yeah. So we do have a, a no wrong door policy, and you know a lot of people will say that, right? I've seen the no wrong door policy, and then you get the wrong door. <laughs> uh, but you can literally call us. We have a website. We have... Um, through the police department, they have cards they pass out. We have a place where you can walk in during business hours. No matter who you get on the team, even if you got another city, we sit in the same office with the other four, you know, all four cities sit together. So you just pass the phone to the next person so you can't get the wrong door. But what you mentioned about is with families, the unique thing about us as well is that we don't just serve the client in need. Sometimes we serve families without ever meeting the person in need because they're not ready yet, and we're okay with that, but the family's ready. Family's ready to, re to um, be educated on de-escalation techniques. The family's educated on all the resources in the community for that time when that one moment when they're ready for help, they already know. They don't have to wait to get the answer. They already know. So we can prepare a family without ever engaging with the individual until they're ready. 
And that's a big step compared to some other, um, you know, barriers that we have in community services is you can't serve a family without the individual present. So we are working to try to shut that down and open that door to the family, to the individuals, and there be no wrong door. And, and, and let me just ask you this. You mentioned calling, that mm -hmm. they can call. So they can call 911 or don't call 911. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a great point. No, we, we're really trying to help the society as a whole understand, you know, not to call 911 for non-emergency type things. And we haven't been in a place where we've been able to provide a service that would meet that need until now. And so, yes, we have we have office lines that are completely separate from the police department, or your office completely separate from police department or any other city building. We want to be as approachable as possible. Um, we're actually in a retired elementary school, and so it's very very much in the community, very much accessible. Um, and then, yeah, so they can come through our website, they can text our, our phone lines, they can call our phone lines, they can send us an email. There's a direct referral system through the website that they can actually just type in some information about themselves and send it through the website, which we will receive and then um, be able to respond back. So there's just a number of different ways. Additionally, as Raven mentioned about engagement, you know, we're literally trying to touch every system in which people with behavioral health needs might be found. So one of the things that we do is we actually visit our regional jail every day that we're in the office and we just check for people that have been observed maybe by our, our detention officers or the officers that brought them in to see did you feel as though there might have been a behavioral health need there? And so we're reaching out to that person while they're in jail before whatever happens so that we can assist them in navigating the system. Um, we help families. Yeah, we work with the judge in our own municipality to work, for, work with uh, Class C level offenses. Uh, one of my big messages was I was like, why do we wait until people commit a more serious offense that would get them to the county before they're eligible for diversion services? And so I thought, let's get them when they're doing something, you know, relatively smaller, like a class C offense. Maybe it's public intoxication or maybe it's, you know, a minor theft because they are they're hungry. Maybe it's criminal mischief because they got upset and, and damaged something. So Maybe it's a, a minor assault. So we're looking at those things and trying to get those people engaged with um, a similar and structured program as you have here at the county for diverting those people into services in lieu of receiving that charge. So just like every, we're just trying to hit every layer of society, every place where these, where these individuals may be found. We meet with them in their homes. They come to our office. We'll meet with you at McDonald's. <laughs> we'll meet with you at the jail at the court all these different places, so. Melissa, I am so impressed that you started this, and you started it in DeSoto, mm -hmm. correct. Okay, how did you end up engaging the other communities as well? Yeah, so um, in DeSoto, we wanted to start kind of small, right, as a pilot, make sure that this kind of experimental process was going to work. All, all signs pointed to this was really going to be effective, um, but we wanted to try that. And then I was encouraged by Dallas County to apply for a grant opportunity that they had back in 2020. 
and we were fortunate enough to receive that and we thought you know what if we're going to get this grant money we need to expand our reach and so we thought let's go to our region and down there in the south uh, southwest we're the best southwest we do a lot of things together and so it became kind of a natural collaboration that hey we're going to reach out to all of our sister cities here and we're going to try to um, maximize our resources and then we were fortunate enough to get approved and and awarded the grant in order to move that forward so and can you repeat again your sister cities that are part of this initiative? Sure. It's Cedar Hill, DeSoto, Duncanville, and Lancaster. Now, I do have a question. I live in Garland, okay, so I could not receive your services. So is it limited to those areas? Do you ever go outside those services? You mentioned um, other programs like the Right Care Team, so that serve other areas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we we have to limit our services to people within our service area. So those who live in our communities or who have significant ties. So occasionally we'll have a client who is maybe in and out of a parent's house and that parent lives in one of those communities. And so we will continue to try to assist that family unit, that individual, um, for as long as they have that tie to that community. But no, generally speaking, if we do receive some sort of referral from an outside area, we're gonna be in conversations with some of the other programs that we know that maybe operate similarly to us Irving has a program, Grand Prairie has a program, Garland has a program, Mesquite has a program, Segoville. So a lot of these other, and we, we have contacts with those teams so we can kind of give them a heads up and make some referrals over to them too. This is incredible, the fact that you have so many teams like this and your team um, that took the initiative um, with your community. I, I think people that are listening are probably amazed that we have an initiative like this. Can you tell us a little bit about the other members of your team? Great, yeah. <laughs> um, so like, like we said earlier, we do have law enforcement on our team. So we have an officer that is uh, gifted to us from each city. Um, so we do have a representative from their cities that they're able to you know, know the area, know their community, and, and give that feedback to the team. Um, we also have social service providers um, that's either a licensed um, master social worker. Um, sometimes we'll have a licensed clinical social worker. Right now we have a, a licensed master social worker. Uh, like myself, I'm a licensed professional counselor too, so I can work with individuals we serve. We have care coordinators through uh, North Texas Behavioral Health Authority. So uh, another community non nonprofit uh, provides care coordinators to us. Um, and then we have, for DeSoto, we have a victim's assistance coordinator. Um, and what we found really unique about that position as well is um, being able to be in that non-police um, building, which is where they're normally uh, situated, we have a lot of uh, more availability for or buy-in from individuals to feel safer to come into an elementary school than to go into the police station when we, when we talk about victim services. So we have this little family, and we're all in, the, in our school. We have you know, our office set up. We have team meetings. Um, we have the ability to really have, what's your favorite word, uh, Lieutenant, is synergy, um, and to learn from each other. I think um, just putting us all in the room, we're seeing perspectives. We're seeing an object from all sides of it. We're able to talk about, across the table about what we're seeing from this particular case. Um, be able to staff that uh, with our different perspectives, our different backgrounds, because we are more than just our current role, right? Like I come with the fact that I'm a parent uh, with someone. Um, she comes with more than just lieutenant, but her negotiation and um, her adoptee status, and she has, you know, a family unit too. So we bring all of these histories 
and our education and our current roles to the table. And we are able to really have a perspective for each individual we serve on a much broader case than just one discipline sitting at the table. Um, and then you bring the client to the table because we don't have and we don't make decisions without them. We, again, are walking alongside them. So they're really part of our multidisciplinary team is them. They're helping us navigate the journey with them and we look for their input. So on paper, that's our team, but really our team includes the clients we serve because they're part of their treatment and part of what we're gonna be moving forward with them. And their support systems. And their support systems, it's true. You know, I, when you mentioned about the team, um, I thought, well, it makes sense, for example, uh, if you were to go to out to a call and you're talking to a parent, because so often we talk to parents and grandparents and family members who are struggling with a loved one, and a lot of times you want to say, I understand what you're going through, and they look at you and they go, no, you don't really understand. But for someone who has been through this with a family member, you certainly can relate, and then they can relate to you because you've been through that experience. Absolutely. There's been many a times where, you know, I'm usually not on the on the field as much as, as the other individuals, but if they'll let me know a case, I'll say when they come back in next time, you know, have them come and talk to me if you'd like to, because I know what it feels like to put my child in a hospital. And I know what it feels like to sit at home knowing they're in a hospital in a, in a strange place and me think, I need to go pick them up. I just, well, they shouldn't be there. And so I know what that feels like to leave your kid there. And so it's not just me being a program manager or doing this. It's a firsthand lived experience of let your child stay. Let them do the things. Here's how you advocate. Here's here this, still the things you can ask and make sure um, that, that you've made the right decision. But that firsthand experience, it's invaluable, and we all have it, but from different different places. I know most people on our team or people who are brought to this field have some personal experience in their background, a loved one that's been through some type of behavioral health need, and how did they get through it, what did they learn from it, and what can they bring forward to the people we serve as well. One of the things that I've heard about this team is how impactful it is. But we live in a day and age where everybody wants to look at statistics and how have you made a determination whether what you are doing is making a difference. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I think, first of all, <laughs> we face the same challenges I think that many um, perhaps criminal justice systems face, and that is prevention. You know, how do we show what we prevented? And so, yes, how do we show that this person stopped going to the hospital on an emergency basis and stopped going to jail and stopped being contacted by the police? You know, it's like we don't we don't get to count that, right? Uh, and so we're working with the Meadows uh, Mental Health Policy Institute, and they are studying our program, and hopefully they will have some recommendations to us as well as to how do we quantify. But beyond that, and, and I'm going to knock on wood, but not really here with this. You know, 18 and a half years in law enforcement, I know as a supervisor for most of that time that, you know, it's really hard to get out there and do real face-to-face -face people work without getting complaints. You know, it's just, it's just going to happen. You're just not going to be able to make everybody happy, right? But I have been amazed myself at this program because we just, we just don't have that. The feedback we get from people is, why didn't this come along sooner? Y'all have been so helpful. Y'all took the time to listen to us and nobody else did. 
we didn't understand that until you explained that to us. Just those types of comments. And we're just not getting, you know, even within behavioral health, you kind of expect to have some resistance at times or some, you know, people that may not be um, entirely enthusiastic about what you're providing for them. But even in those moments, it's still people are leaving with a, with a good sense about what we're doing. Yeah, because we're not making false promises. We're not going to say your person's going to be 100% better. We're not saying you as yourself are going to be 100% better. The only thing we're promising is that we're going to stick around until you figure it out or you don't want us to stick around anymore. That's the promise we'll make. That's incredible. Um, in the criminal justice system so often, uh, there is a belief that especially when you're dealing with individuals who do suffer from a mental illness, that sometimes judges or, you know, even defense attorneys and prosecutors think, you know, this is a moral failing. Why aren't you doing better? We're giving you these resources and helping you and giving you a second chance and you're not doing any better. But what is so amazing about you guys, you have a lot of patience working with individuals and families. And as you said earlier, even if you have the individual who is not ready to make a change, you can work with the family members and make suggestions and help them. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think I started from my perspective before Raven, I'm sure, tells her perspective. But coming from, again, a criminal justice background, working with other victim advocates and victims assistance coordinators and learning about, for instance, the, the nature of domestic violence. You know, statistically, it takes an abused person seven times to leave their abuser. So that's seven abortive attempts to get out of this situation that's dangerous to them, right? Um, something that seems so logical for those of us who are not in the situation, right? But I try to remember that, kind of draw a parallel with that to people with behavioral health needs. So we're talking about people with addictions or people with ongoing mental illness or people with trauma that's maybe been left untreated or stress that is completely out of control. So, you know, if it takes a, an abused victim seven times statistically on average to leave, you know, how much more effort is it going to take for somebody who has that ongoing situation in their life? And so just having the patience and knowing that, you know, okay, today might not be your day. That's okay. We're going to live and look forward to when it is your day and understand that ongoing nature of needing to provide support to keep people in recovery. And it's, it makes me very happy that mental health and behavioral health are coming more to the forefront of conversations and, and having people really have open discussions about it. But the reality is, is it's only now in the recent years that we even discuss it in schools, that we even teach kids what it is. Health, yes, but mental health, somehow that's not health to most people. Um, but it really is. And so there's this warped vision of what that looks like. We wouldn't ask someone who had a medical disease to just get over it. But we do ask them to do that for mental health. It's not seen on the same uh, levels. People do have baselines. Sometimes they aren't always going to be perfect with the medication like you would if you took your blood pressure medicine. Some things don't happen like that. You wouldn't ask your person with dementia to just get it together. Um, so it, this education and this movement that we're really recognizing what mental health is and we're talking more and more about it, I think we're going to learn. Uh, and I think a lot of people will kind of uh, overcome that. Um, but it's going to take a lot more than, you know, right now. I think educating um, our youth into what mental health is and letting them understand how to advocate for themselves very young instead of hiding it or feeling like they're alone in something, um, I think that's the step one. I. I tell the story that my child came home with a piece of paper that said that they would be allowed to talk about mental health in class. And I was like, 
have to get permission for my kid to talk about mental health. Um, and so, of course, yeah, I'm like, I'll sign it and I'll come teach it. Um, but that's kind of the nature of evolution. And that was probably about 10 years ago, yeah, with him graduating. So, you know, we're getting there, but it's, it's a lot. We still have a lot of room to grow. So you're dealing with different age groups. I noticed uh, an article in the newspaper recently where local law enforcement agencies are training officers to deal with elderly patients with dementia and um, how to deal with that, that population. So you see all ages, I would imagine, all genders, all races, the whole gamut. The whole gamut of, of yeah. human, yes. <laughs> and I was say, it's interesting that you mentioned training. That's actually part of what our team does as well as um, alongside Lieutenant, we teach CIT training. So we do go in and talk to officers and we train them about mental health and signs and symptoms and um, de-escalation and everything else. And you can talk more about that, but that's part of our mission too is training. And I think one of the biggest parts of the training process for us nowadays in law enforcement is understanding the system as a whole and understanding what part a police officer plays in that system. Uh, that's a big part of the education piece for our families and individuals in our community as well is systems navigation. Uh, you know, all of us probably enjoy insurance and we enjoy uh, health care provision and we enjoy uh, employment and we enjoy all these different things, but we, we forget sometimes these are systems that have to be navigated, right? Like you have to bring your driver's license to your doctor appointment. You have to be able to provide your social security number and you have to, you know, jump through any number of hoops to access these services, which is not inherent to everybody. Not everybody understands that some of these systems are incredibly complex, even just for somebody who is logical, rational, thinking straight, knows how they to do, you know, going to the social security office, for instance, to get something can be incredibly um, complicated. And so uh, helping individuals and families understand those systems and then in turn us understanding those systems better and then help being able to help navigate them. Absolutely. Funding. You mentioned something about Dallas County providing some funding. I can imagine that the this is complex, and after COVID, we are seeing probably a significant increase in people that are suffering from trauma and mental illness. So the numbers are astounding. When we look at our Dallas County Jail, which usually houses up to um, anywhere up to 6,000 people a day, 40% of those, and I think that's conservative, you know, suffer from some sort of mental illness. So money obviously has an impact on how successful and how many people we can reach. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Dallas County, uh, we're still under the New Directions of Public Safety Grant until April 30th of 2024, so we still have some, some time with that. Um, we are working right now with the cities that are partnered with us to really come up with a sustainable budget because we do not, um, again, uh, charge for any of the services we have. There's not a reimbursable rate for that. So it's really proving um, the impact that we're having on our other systems. So uh, the numbers that we're looking for, like you said, this is hard and tangible. How do you show what you prevented? Um, but when there are some individuals that we can show prevention on um, individuals, uh, I think of an example where uh, when we did our last report, an individual, I think it was in October, had had 31 calls to the 911 system, all behavioral health based. Um, and then in December, it jumped down to 15. And then in January, there was one call. 
So showing the impact of the time that it took for the dispatcher to take the phone call. Wh what did it cost them per hour? Then what did it cost to run that vehicle out there? How, many, how much uh, money did it cost for that officer to respond? If an ambulance or, or if fire department had to respond to, what did it cost to do that? That's very hard to quantify when you're talking about prevention unless you have these specific examples. But when you come up with a number, which is, again, kind of what we're working at is, while we don't have revenue, it's what money are we saving here that's making it worth putting it in this other program um, for us to do that. And because we also have a combined regional effort, um, combining our, our team is also a cost savings. Um, so for example, if DeSoto has two calls today, um, right, and let's just say Duncanville doesn't. They're, they're all paperwork today, they gotta catch up. But DeSoto has two calls today. If this DeSoto had their own team by themselves, that would take the DeSoto officer and the DeSoto social worker out of the field, period. They couldn't do anything else. They'd be able to do that one call at a time. But with having another officer, that DeSoto officer and a care coordinator can go, and maybe that spare Duncanville officer and the social worker can go. So two calls are getting handled at once for one city. We all trade. We all respond to each other's cities. We all primarily take care of our own but we all also coordinate for each other city. So you get a secondary officer, you get secondary supports. The money you're bringing into the team, you're getting tenfold back because you're getting access to all the other team members and their brain with and their experience and all the stuff that they're bringing to the table. You're getting the unified location, a safe location for their, for their community to come to. You're not having to work about space. We share vehicles. All of these things is a cost saving. So we're just working on proving that for the next year. So if somebody wants to help, they want to contribute to that or to assist in any way, who do they get in contact with? Me, I guess. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm your lady. Yes. Um, so we have talked just kind of offline with some of our um, local churches, and, and we've heard, you know, kind of murmurings about wanting to help us um, with some funding. Anything would be appreciated. It takes uh, the burden off of, of that sustainability plan. It's uh, much needed for the community. We're showing that. Um, our reports are given to Dallas County, so they see the impact that we have. Um, but we are working to continue showing that. And I think that if we can get people who want to support the cause um, through many ways, volunteers is another thing. We accept volunteers who want to help us on certain things um, that are not associated with the confidentiality pieces of it. So we do have pieces of our work. Um, but, of course, monetary is a big thing to help us um, continue on our goals. Is there a number they can call or they go to your website? or? Uh, yeah, go to our website. That's our easiest way, which is regionalcareteam.org. Um, a, because you get to see all of our beautiful bios and our history, our goals and our mission statement. Um, really, you get to see our core values and what we are um, just by looking at everything that's there. But also you can contact us and you can see how each individual city has their own landing page. We have, like she said earlier, ways to say, I am someone in need, and you fill out a form, or I care for someone in need, and you fill out a form. And so reaching us in that way um, as well. We're also um, developing with another um, third-party system right now where you can chat online with us live um, during our business hours. So it's not up yet, but that will be there soon. And so some people, if they want a little bit of privacy, a little bit of space before they delve in with us, that's going to be another avenue. And again, another no wrong door avenue to let them, you know, test the waters and see if this is what they really want to dive into. But yes, regionalcareteam.org. You'll go to the, the last page that says general inquiries. You'll see uh, both of our numbers, but you can reach out to me and we can go from there for sure. Fantastic. Last question. 
I'm a citizen who has a loved one who suffers from a mental illness, and they haven't been taking their medication. They've gotten a little aggressive. Uh, again, we don't want them to go to jail. If we were to contact you guys, can you walk us through what happens after that contact is made? Yes. So when a particularly a family member reaches out to us, we begin by getting their perspective of the situation. So what are the, their observations? What, what kind of history have they had with their person um, leading up to that? What are their concerns for their person? And we allow, we, again, our team approach to looking at that situation and seeing what all needs to be plugged in. We also simultaneously begin an engagement process with the individual. And so, uh, you know, engagement processes isn't a very um, exciting <laughs> process. It's more about, you know, calling the individual, maybe going by and trying to see them. Uh, you know, more recently, we've, we've been trying to take a very trauma-informed approach to engagement, meaning that, um, you know, maybe our engagement is just rapport building. Maybe it's just to meet you and for you to see us and meet us and begin to grow comfortable with us. So we may not even ask that individual to do anything or go anywhere or get any service or anything like that. Maybe it's just several short visits just to get acquainted. Um, and then at that point, we can start pointing the family towards educational resources, support resources, um, so they understand better how to engage with their person and then we're starting to draft a plan for the individual themselves on what services we think might be most appropriate for them. One of the other key things that's kind of good at this time and or this point in time in having law enforcement involved is that we can assist families with a mental health warrant process if that becomes necessary. We do have individuals in our communities who are not necessarily an emergency because of their mental health need, but their situation is quickly brewing to a boiling point. And so before we get there, we kind of help families with um, understanding how to articulate that on their uh, mental health warrant, how to obtain that, what to expect when that happens. And then here's the really key piece and probably my biggest soapbox. <laughs> Our current emergency system for mental health in Texas is just for assessment, not treatment. And so many people think, and I've been in that boat too, where I thought that as well, is when that person goes in on that emergency detention or they go on a mental health warrant, that they're getting treatment at that point. And that's just not the case, and it leads to a lot of disappointment. Um, so we're there to pick up the pieces after the emergency is, is done and that person has gotten assessed and then try to make sure that as they reenter the community that they're connected, that they understand, and that they know what to do from there. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much, and I've been doing a lot of this for a long, long time. Uh, the regional care team and the fact that you are ingrained in the community and helping so many people, there is such a need for this. I, I just hope that our podcast listeners who, even if you don't have a loved one or if you're not struggling with these issues, that if you know someone that is, that they will reach out to you. Can you tell us again how to get in contact with you? I can tell them that they can call the Dallas County Public Defender's Office at 214-653-3550, and we can connect them with you. But if they want to contact you directly, how do they go about doing that? 
Sure. And, and once again, we really value our relationship with the Public Defender's Office. We're so grateful to be collaborating, working with you guys on a Absolutely. regular basis. Um, but yeah, regionalcareteam.org, all one word, regionalcareteam.org, or our main number is 469-501-1843. Again, 469-501-1843. Thank you. Any last words, Lieutenant Melissa? I'm going to call you Lieutenant <laughs> Melissa and Raven. We're just really excited about our team and really proud of uh, what we've been doing. It has been a pilot, so we've been learning along the way, too. Um, we appreciate the community in helping us learn because we can have a vast idea about what we want to do, but we needed to hear what they needed as well. And so we learned and we grew right alongside them, and we changed what we were doing and, and manipulated the way we were moving to make sure we really were walking the path, not just saying we were walking the path. And so we appreciate our community. We appreciate our leaders who've given us really a lot, a lot of latitude to make what we wanted to do out of this. That includes Dallas County and saying, hey, here's your pilot. Here's your funding. You've got a great mission. Tell us how you want to do it. And so we really appreciate all the parties that have been involved. Thank you. Lieutenant? That, just thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to come out here and speak to a wider audience about it. I think that's probably been our greatest challenge, yeah. just being the best-kept secret of the Best <laughs> Southwest. Uh, neither one of us are marketing people, and so just getting the word out maybe has been a little bit of a challenge for us, but we're very proud of what we do, and we enjoy what we do, and we really hope that we can help people. Thanks to you both. Again, the Dallas County Public Defender's Office does this podcast because we seek to educate and to inform people. I think we have educated a lot of people about a lot of the challenges that our citizens are facing, but more than in anything else, to inform them that there is a team like the regional care team to provide those services and to think about the collaboration of this multidisciplinary team from different areas with different skill sets all to help members of our community that are in need. It is so incredibly important. Again, thank you, thank you to our guests for this second edition of The Deep Dive, coming from the Dallas County Public Defender's Office here in Dallas, Texas. Again, we want to thank Lieutenant Melissa Franks with the DeSoto Police Department, who is the Regional Care Team, Regional Team Coordinator and Raven Thousand, a licensed professional counselor who is the regional program manager for the regional care team. This unit covers the city of DeSoto, Cedar Hill, Duncanville, and Lancaster, all located in Dallas County, Texas. It's actually one of similar programs that are collaborative in nature where people are partnered with law enforcement, staffed with peace officers, care coordinators, through mental health providers, victim assistance coordinators, and licensed social service providers to provide services and assistance for people suffering from a mental illness. These teams provide support and assistance to citizens in their communities and to their families who are experiencing behavioral health needs. They provide prevention, follow-up support, education, self-advocacy, diversion opportunities when needed, and warm handoffs to appropriate community referral partners, hopefully with the goal of keeping those who are mentally ill or have intellectual disabilities in a position where they can get the assistance, help, and support they need. Some key findings. 
by the Mental Health of America based on a national survey. 50 million American adults are experiencing some form of mental illness. More than 2.7 million young people are experiencing severe major depression. 55% of adults with a mental illness receive no treatment for their mental illness. That is about 28 million people. Over 5.5 million adults in the United States with a mental illness are uninsured. 60% of youth with major depression do not receive needed mental health treatment. In the U.S., there are 350 individuals for every one mental health professional. In the United States, men are four times more likely to die by suicide than women. That means suicide is the seventh leading cause of death among men. We are in a crisis situation, ladies and gentlemen. We must do something about it. So see, I told you, the deep dive seeks to educate, expose, and inform all of our podcast listeners about what is happening in our communities, in our courts, and in the justice system. I wanted to give you an example of how we're all working together. Individuals in the court, like the public defender's office, the district attorney's office, probation, individuals in our behavioral health community, and in our communities providing services like housing, all trying to get a handle around this issue. Right now, our jails and our prisons are housing many of our mentally ill citizens who should be receiving treatment and services in the communities they live in, but there simply aren't enough services or beds available. And thank goodness for initiatives like the regional care team who are doing everything possible to number one, divert people with these behavioral health issues away from our jails and prisons and the courts and ensuring that they get the treatment and services and support they need. Not only that, looking at their family members and providing assistance and education to them, helping them to deal with their loved one who is dealing with either depression, feelings of suicide, all of those issues that contribute to the mass numbers of individuals that are suffering from mental illness. We wanted to educate you here at The Deep Dive to let you know there are programs in place to provide assistance. There's a lot of criticism sometimes against law enforcement about the over-policing in certain communities, excessive force, the inequities in the criminal justice system, but we here at the Public Defender's Office wanted to educate you about programs that exist that all of the individuals involved in these systems are working together to try to fix. It is a monumental task. There's not enough funding. And we have to thank funders like Dallas County government who provided funding for this regional care team. They saw the need and we saw the efforts that can be made to correct these problems. So again, we thank our guests that were here today. We're looking forward to our next podcast and again, we bring you greetings, and we also encourage you to continue to listen to the Dallas County Public Defender's Office Deep Dive Podcast. 
Hello. Find us on Instagram at Dallas Public Defenders or visit our website, dallascounty.org slash government slash public dash defender. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The Deep Dive is a production of the Dallas County Public Defender's Office, and it is produced by Alexis McCallan, Vicki Rice, Michaela Himes, Paul Blocker, and Lynn Pride Richardson. <laughs>